This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice, a conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Welcome once again to our podcast on criminal justice, on the issues surrounding criminal justice. My name is Greg Smith, and I'm here with author Jason Karch. Uh, Hurt with Fetters is his book, and uh, this is our podcast. Today, we're going to reflect on the issue of justice, reflections on justice itself. We may try to come up with some definitions, and we invite you to engage with us. Jason, first of all, thank you for, for being here today. Tell me what exactly would be your definition of the word justice? Well, like we said, you know, in the past, it, this is kind of what this has been driving towards. And I make the point in this particular reflection that justice is a big word. To narrow this down on how people have tried to define justice, simply put, justice can be defined as equity and the way equity works itself out in terms of fairness. You know, that's kind of how we define it. Now, what that actually means, you know, in the context of Western history, you know, is defined in different ways. Equity itself is defined in different ways, or the goal of equity is defined in different ways. But just simply put, justice is defined as equity. So would you define it then, if, if we had um, uh, perfect, or we'll talk here in a minute about primary justice, would it mean that everyone is treated exactly the same is that equity is that fairness well yes because of a basic ontological grounding we are equal in our being before god before god and even before one another okay but in his Uh, image we're created in his image all the same equal yes and so for a fair distribution of justice, for it to be fair, it has to be fair in reference to that basic equity we share as human beings. Okay. So that everyone is treated the same before, if we're we're talking about the criminal justice system then, for it to be just or for us to have justice, everyone would have to be treated the same before the bar of justice. So I want us to hold on to that. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. But let's begin with an example. And so would you just kind of walk us through a a criminal justice event that took place back in 2013 right here in Texas, a young man named Ethan Couch. Tell us about Ethan and what happened there. The story of Ethan Couch was a highly publicized event at the time. Ethan Couch came from a very wealthy family. His father was very wealthy and Ethan Couch killed four people and injured nine other people. One of those people that he injured was completely paralyzed and of course he did this driving a vehicle while intoxicated. Did he have a driver's license? He was 16 years old. Yeah, I, I do not believe he had a driver's license. I do not believe that the vehicle he was in was insured any of that. Well, it was his father, my, my understanding or my remembrance is it was his father's 
work truck, I think. His mother and father were out of town. He had a party at his house. They had alcohol and drugs. The alcohol also, by the way, they had stolen that night. He and a couple of friends stole three cases of beer, I think, from a Walmart. Then they also had some drugs involved, and uh, they were having this party at his house. And at some point, he got into his father's truck with some other kids, and they were racing down a back road in Texas, evidently. Mm-hmm. And so when he was arrested, he was charged with four counts of intoxicated manslaughter. He was driving, he was driving 70, over 70 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone, by the way. And just for clarification, the individuals that were killed were a mother and her daughter, a young man who was a youth minister at a church who had stopped to help this mother and daughter who had broken down. She had broken down outside in, in kind of a rural area, but it was outside a, a house, and a man and his wife had come down to, to help out because she had actually hit the mailbox, and so the man had taken the mailbox back up to the house, and his wife was also one of the ones killed. So it was a woman, her daughter, the woman who lived at the house, a youth minister. And then the individual who was injured was actually in the back of it. it. was one of Ethan's friends who was in the back of the pickup and was thrown out, and he is currently quadriplegic. So he went to court. He was arrested. He was several times over the legal limit alcohol. He also had other drugs in his system. He went to trial. He was charged with intoxicated manslaughter. And, and so his, his defense lawyers came up with a, with a very interesting defense strategy. Talk about that. They dubbed this strategy in the media the affluenza defense. Because of his affluence, because of the wealth and the privilege with which he grew up, he was unable to determine uh, between right and wrong. You know, there's an amoral position uh, that was instilled into him because of his affluence. So he was unable to to determine that he had done something wrong by taking the lives of these people uh, in this act of, I mean, wanton carelessness, basically. In which four people died and one was permanently, severely disabled. So in presenting this defense, somehow the the defense attorney was able to sell the, the defense that he was morally incapable of understanding his offense okay. to these people who sure. had lost their lives. They sentenced him to probation, I believe, what, 10, ten years, years probation? 10 years of probation. And this somewhat scandalized uh, things when the Fort Worth Star-Telegram published an article where the same prosecutor, the same judge, from the same courtroom had sentenced a, another teenager uh, with a similar crime under similar circumstances. They sentenced him to 20 years in prison. And the only difference between these two kids was the one that got 20 years but didn't take as many lives or cause near as much damage as Ethan Couch did but he was also was not affected by influenza. So he was a poor Hispanic young man who had a court-appointed attorney and did not have the means to really provide a vigorous defense I suppose like uh, Ethan Couch's very high-powered very expensive attorneys did right and so the question here is is that fair, right? So was justice served in one or the other, or both? Is that is it even possible? Or I mean, from the 
from the surface, you look at that and say, there's nothing just about that either way, right? Now, I, I don't think that we can make the determination that justice was served in one case and not in the other. But I do believe it demonstrates for us the disparity between a real and fair uh, distribution of justice based on a common equality we share. Because in this case, however justice, if that's even what we're going to call it, was distributed, it, number one, was not fair, and it was not based on a common equality we share as human beings. So all of this plays into the narrative of criminal justice that is currently being uh, argued or being understood in our culture and society. And so you're suggesting that in the current criminal justice system, the affluent are treated differently from, uh, from the non-affluent. Is that the basic issue or problem? So we're not necessarily talking about racial inequality, which may very well exist as well, but, but you would argue that the basic narrative today discriminates based upon your means or your class. Okay. Exactly. And you talk about like a rigorous defense uh, provided for somebody like Ethan Couch by his father hiring these higher power attorneys. That definitely plays a role in it. But I think on the flip side of that, I don't think the prosecution rigorously pursues a conviction to the fullest and punishment to the fullest extent of the law towards people like that. I think a prosecutor really, really struggles to see somebody like Ethan Couch as one of the bad people. And because he can't, he struggles to see Ethan Couch as one of the bad people, now he struggles to, to treat Ethan Couch the same way he would treat the other guy that he has no problem at seeing as a bad person. So because Ethan Couch was wealthy, just, just to understand what you're saying, the prosecutor would be able to look at the act and say, okay, four people died and one was permanently disabled. And so that's a bad act, but it's not done by a bad person. So we, you, you would think that the distinction would be made between the act and the person, whereas someone who doesn't have money, the prosecutor might look at them not just as the act being bad, but also as the person being bad. And that would skew how justice is administered. Exactly. Okay, so in that light then, what it looks like is that if you have affluence, not only are you not held to the, the same standard, but you're basically not accountable for your actions, and certainly in Ethan Couch's position. You know, there's two factors there. One, it's built into this current narrative of criminal justice that there is a definitive distinction between how people see some people who are inherently good and some people who are inherently bad, number one. And number two, I think there's an economic factor in this because uh, a prosecutor coming into a criminal defense trial against a legal team that has a great deal of resources at its disposal as opposed to coming in and putting on you know, a trial against a public defender, a court-appointed attorney. Who may have been a lawyer for a year or less. And who that. doesn't have any resources. Right. You know, uh, he knows that you know, he's fighting an uphill battle against uh, a very wealthy and resourceful legal mm -hmm. team, and it's going to end up costing the state a great deal of money to combat 
that legal defense in the same level that it would be to combat a public defender or a court-appointed attorney. So I think it's both of those factors together. And how is that equity when it comes to justice? How is that fair? Okay, so you're right that questions should emerge out of these type of events. So the type of events where some are let off because they have means or they have the attorneys that can get them off. So questions should emerge out of these type of events concerning how we understand justice and what we expect from that understanding. So let's go there right now. So what are the questions that come from these things? What questions are raised on how we understand justice? Well, first, I think when we think about justice, automatically our minds turn to criminal justice because that's what is before us. That's what's presented in the media, you know, in the arts. They make TV shows like Law and Order. You know, these types of television shows that keep criminal justice, you know, ever before us. And so questions emerge concerning how we understand justice is justice the good people punishing the bad. And if that's what it is, uh, what do we expect from that? Well, we expect the good people to deal adequately with the bad people if that is what justice is. But if we define justice in a different way, based on a common equity we share as human beings that have a, a common equality in our being because we're created in the image and likeness of God, then we have a different expectation. We have a different understanding of justice and a different expectation of what justice is supposed to both be and do. And so that's my question then, what is that? And maybe just to help us think through this, you raise a you raise the issue of primary justice. Could you could you just take a minute and explain what primary justice is. Primary justice is first and foremost how we deal or how we determine what equity is. So, and I end up using the example from Aristotle. Aristotle has been the primary mover and shaker for determining for us what justice is in the Western tradition. And that's based on equity. But for Aristotle, equity in terms of primary justice has a social nexus that doesn't apply equally to everybody. Because some people are more equal than others. Exactly. So in Aristotle's time, men. Free Greek males. Free Greek males. Yeah. Okay. So if you are a free Greek female, you don't have the same equity primarily as a free Greek male. You know, you're a step down from them. So a free Greek male can treat a free Greek female in a way that he would not be able to treat a free Greek male in terms of this primary justice. And then if you're a non-Greek male, it's the same thing. If you're a slave, for sure, you don't share the same equity as as a free Greek male. And then it becomes a question of how this equity, when it is ruptured, is distributed in terms of fairness, to reset a sense of justice. You know, just to take the question just a little bit further, so you write, my attempt here to conceptualize primary justice and characterize its goal 
will stem specifically from an understanding of the Christian tradition. You mentioned that uh, Thomas Aquinas took the Aristotelian model for justice and kind of couched it in Christian terms or brought it into the Christian world. Would you say that a Christian understanding of justice then today flows out of that tradition from Aristotle through Aquinas to today in some way? Well, I think the primary means for which we understand justice from the Christian tradition comes from Aquinas, I would say that. But would Aquinas hold the same social norms as Aristotle? Oh, no, 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 no. He would understand equity differently than Aristotle, particularly in reference to that social nexus. The goal of justice or the carrying out of that equity being in reference to the right or the use of justice. Sure. But from Aquinas, would there still be some type of social level of equality or some people more equal than others? Well, given that Aquinas you know, was in the 13th century in Europe, the feudal system still reigned. I don't know necessarily that Aquinas would see you know, the peasant class as being on the same level as maybe the aristocracy. Okay. I, don't, I don't know for sure. But what I do know is that the life that Aquinas chose to lead, he's a Dominican monk. Sure. The Dominicans, much like the Franciscans, were a part of the mendicant orders or the beggar monks. Mm. So maybe, Aquinas came from a uh, fairly wealthy family. Wealthy the aristocracy, family. absolutely. So maybe he did see everybody as fundamentally equal from that basic ontological equity we share by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. But what we do know is that for him, that equality was determined by some prior criteria, which I think for him would be that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Okay, so if that is the criteria, but you then go on to, and I mean created in the image of God, you're right. Unfortunately, even when we consider the justice of God, but in, in God's uh, just system, if, if that is our, the foundation of our Christian conception of justice, you say that unfortunately that our conceptions are too often shaped by narrative emphases that are contrary to Christian ideals. What do you mean by that? Just think about this narrative of criminal justice that we've been talking about uh, through you know these series of podcasts there is a there is a narrative that determines our understanding of justice and the goal of justice that runs counter it contradicts the Christian narrative because people don't see one another as equal you know so I think that far too many times when you say people you mean Christians don't see Christians are affected by this narrative. They buy into this narrative at the dismissal of the Christian narrative. Now, whether they do this knowingly or not, I don't know, and I'll give you an example. I was talking to a a man who owns multiple businesses, and he was really interested in the book, and he was asking me questions about the book. So I told him, well, really, it's a competition of narratives. And as I explain this to him, he stands there. Now, this is a man of God that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stands there for a minute and kind of stares off into space. And then he says, huh. He said, I have never thought about that before. 
He said, but now that you say it, he said, it becomes very, very glaring. And so I think well-meaning Christian people through the media, the arts, through the pervasive nature of the way that this particular narrative is presented, they become overwhelmed by it or immersed in it to the point to where they can't really see the contradiction over and against the Christian narrative. So before we leave that thought, so you write, when the word justice then is thrown into a conversation, it comes with a number of conceptual and referential presuppositions that many participants in the conversation are unaware of, whether willingly or unwillingly. What are then those conceptual and referential presuppositions? Those presuppositions are that there are inherently good people in the world and inherently bad people and that it is the responsibility, the distinct responsibility of the good people to deal adequately with the bad or even justly with the bad. You know, so I think those are part of those presuppositions, you know, that there is a, a distinction between certain people that ontologically does not exist. It's not real. It may be a real thing economically. It may be a real thing physically, you know, because obviously physically some of us are different than the other people, whatever. But in our being, it's not a reality. We're there's people. no difference. There's no difference in our being. And certainly when we're talking about before God. Certainly before God. And, and I you, think before one another. Sure. Whether we recognize it or not. So the conceptual or referential presuppositions are that we are not equal, even though we might give lip service to the fact that all men are created equal, even when the Declaration of Independence was written, that was not a reality in the United States. All white men were created equal, but everybody else not quite so, which would kind of flow from that Aristotelian model of justice. So you come to a narrowing of the focus of uh, Aristotle's understanding of justice, which is the issue of equity. And you move to, or in this narrowing, you throw out the, the Greek word dike, or dikaisune, or dikaion, which, you know, translated, roughly translated, would be uh, right or righteousness. Talk about that for just a minute. What is right or righteousness compared to equity, or how do those two things fit? I'll give a, a definition of the, the dike word group there, where it says, you know, a man is righteous or he's just when he meets certain claims which another has on him in virtue of relationship. And so when we think about righteousness or being just before one another, there's a relational aspect to that that I think only flows out of the Christian narrative. So equity based upon the ontological aspect where equal before God or we're created, we're the same before God, but justice or just justification is more of a relational type word, is that, or a relational understanding. Yeah, and well, so you just think about, you know, the, the statue Lady Justice, you know, she has the blindfold on, so there's a, a presupposition built into this particular piece of art that she's fair because she sees no distinction so her sword is in one hand pointed down 
you know, to punish those who upset the equity of justice. And then she has the scales in the other hand. One side of the scale is balanced by the law. Well, well by the other side. So there's a okay. relationship between okay. two sides of the scale. And so the equity, you can, you can see yourself on one side of the scale, myself on the other side of the scale. There's a perfect balance there. You don't outweigh me, I don't outweigh you in terms of our equity. But when you think about this relationship, it's not a quality or a substance. It's that ontological condition relationally that we share as human beings. You know, when we talked about our reflection on ontology, you know, we dealt with that a little bit, but this plays a distinct factor in how we understand justice and understand the goal of justice. But wouldn't that make sense in the criminal justice system if righteousness then flows from or it's a function of or or it demonstrates relationship. So God is righteous. He is right. And in Christ Jesus, he imputes his righteousness on people like you and me because we are unrighteous. So there is a distinction. The relationship is broken because of sin if we were to couch sin in terms of criminal activity. So I have committed a crime against God, and so I am unrighteous because of that. But wouldn't that play in then to the current narrative of the criminal justice system? Because, again, you got good people and bad people, if that's the narrative, and good people passing judgment on bad people, what is the distinction there, what perhaps it ought to be, is the law has been broken or there has been a you know, a sin against, you know, mankind. And so the state has a responsibility. If I do something to you or if I commit a crime against you, the state then is, because of the, the broken relationship, I guess, the state then comes in on my side or deals with you in terms of righteousness. Well, and again, what is the goal here? Is the goal of the state... Now think about when the relationship between humanity and God was ruptured by sin. Of course, God then sends Christ to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So there can be a restoration. The imputed righteousness of Christ then restores that relationship that we originally shared with God as human beings. So through Christ, we have that restoration. Mm -hmm. We are redeemed, restored back to him. Well, so the goal of the, of the criminal justice system ought to be the same thing. When justice is violated, the goal of justice should be the restoration of a relationship that has been ruptured. If you have these scales and the scales are knocked off balance because one person has violated the common equity he or she shares with another person, the goal should be the rebalancing of the scales, not a further offsets the other way. And that's exactly what we see in the criminal justice system that further perpetuates injustice. Sure. Which raises a couple of questions for me. So when God imputes his righteousness to us, he does that as a result of or based upon our own repentance. Unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. So you don't receive the righteousness of God in Christ apart from a turning or a repentance, which is a heart issue, which God is able to judge the heart. So if I repent, God can tell if I'm 
truly repentant or not. I mean, I can say, hey, God, I repent, but not be truly repentant because God judges the heart. Humanity or human beings, criminal justice system administered by human beings is not able to judge the heart. So how can we do that? Is it even possible, I guess, to restore or do the same thing that God does in justice, which is to equal the balance? If the balance is offset and I punish the offender, does that restore balance? I think would be, you know, would be the, the, the way the narrative wants to play out. So if I punish the offender, that's going to bring the balance back. That's not justice. Okay, may not be, but I guess my question then is how are human beings able to do other than that? You make the point that we are unable to judge the human heart. So why punish somebody to begin with? I mean, we can't judge their heart. We certainly think that we can. Uh, For instance, the charging instrument in a felony offense, the indictment that is handed down by a grand jury, one of the elements of my indictment that had to be proved as a charging instrument for the jury is that I displayed a deadly weapon, in this case a handgun, with the intent to cause serious bodily injury or death. So the jury had to decide whether or not you had the intent or not. How does how does a jury know what how you intended? How do they do that? Right. So they certainly, the state certainly thinks that it can judge the heart of a man, but when it comes to judging the intent of the heart in terms of repentance, in terms of a desire to be restored back to society, to be redeemed, they don't want to take the steps to judge that because that is not a part of the narrative. And I think if well, we're or going, or just I'm sorry to interrupt you, but 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 I remember you saying that. The prosecuting attorney actually did that in the sentencing phase when he pointed, when he looked at you before the jury said, this man will never change. He was judging the intent or the, even the possibility of the heart. Yeah, or the finality of the hardness of my heart or the corrupt nature of my heart, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. But for justice to coincide with the Christian narrative, to have a Christian understanding of justice, absolutely. When justice is upset, there has to be accountability for that. But like we've talked about before, those who upset justice need to understand that their accountability to their criminal acts, they're being held accountable in a way that affords them opportunities for redemption, for restoration, to give them an opportunity. Some people may not want it. I mean, the immense reconciliation that is offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see it every day. People don't want it. Sure. They reject it, and there will be a full and final judgment against that at some point. I guess the difference maybe just that comes to mind is someone who is incarcerated in, in uh, the criminal justice system, you offer this, you could say, yeah, I want that. I mean, is, would there be anybody that go, no, I'd rather stay in prison than get out? You'd be surprised. Okay. Dealing with a guy who had uh, you know, recently lost his, his father. And the last time he visited with his father, he said he could tell that his, that his dad was, was, was sick. Mm-hmm. He told him, I'm ready for you to, to come home. And so he said just a couple of weeks after that, he was granted parole. And while he was waiting 
to actually be released back into society. He assaulted another guy in here with a mop handle, lost his parole. You know, now he's in a position to where he can't even see parole anymore. So some people, yeah, they, they don't want it. So yeah. the state provides a place for people that don't want it, but it also ought to be a place where people who want it can get it. Sure. Which theoretically would be a rehabilitation or programs inside. But before we leave this and, and go just a little bit further, I, I want to kind of go back to the issue of the balance of justice. There's two basic understandings then of justice. There's the Aristotelian model, which is justice is equity. And the rightness or wrongness is, or, or right and wrong, I guess basically I'm going back to the decay or decasune, the righteousness, is not really the where the the system wants to take us. It, it, it really ultimately cannot even be administered humanly. So then the second understanding of justice is the ground of God, the being of God. And, and what you argue is that a Christian understanding of justice, th- this is the proper place to go. If I, need to, if I want to understand what justice is or what it should be, go back to who God is. You note that uh, the 92nd Psalm says the Lord is upright and there is no unrighteousness in him. So God is just, period. God is righteous. There is no unrighteousness in him. So in saying this, you say that uh, this says something about both God and justice. Since God is just, justice is conceptually derived from and always refers back to God. That if you want to have a proper understanding of justice, you all you have to go back. And uh, you have to go back to, to God himself. And so, since that's the reality, then the being of God or the understanding of God or who God is should shape the Christian understanding of justice. But then you write this. Thus, God's justice should naturally shape how Christians consistently live out what it is we believe about justice in a world that increasingly undermines any specific belief about God altogether. Talk about that for just a minute. We live in a world that basically is rejecting God and the, and the understanding of God, or the ways of God, or the belief in God. And so we have a problem, right? Is that, is that the point? Yes, and I want you to think about this. In the criminal justice system, if you see older movies, about criminal trials that take place years ago. Whenever a witness is placed into the witness stand and sworn in, how do they how do they swear a witness in? Sure. Put your hand on the Bible. Put your hand in the Bible. And so do you swear the truth, tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So, so help me God. God. Hmm. Well now that doesn't happen anymore. Now you raise your hand and you swear to tell the truth, but based on what? Number one, what is your standard of truth? What is the the referent to which you are swearing by? I mean, is it the system that you trust in so much? Or yourself. Or yourself? You know, what is the, what is the referent to which you're swearing to uh, and that you are beholden to in terms of your swear or your promise? And even when you think about the being of God, when God had nothing higher to swear by, he swore by himself. Yeah. And so that's what I mean when we 
as Christians attempt to live out our understanding of justice is flowing back to God and from God, we do so in a world that, that consistently undermines any conceptual understanding or belief in God altogether. So how is that even possible then? I mean, a, a child of God or a believer then has to deliberately, I think, uh, if we're engaged in the criminal justice system in any way or we're going to speak to it, we really have to, to understand where they're coming from and where we're coming from. There is a, there is a distinct dichotomy between how we think about these things as a believer and unbelievers. And so we, I guess even beginning, we've got to address that, which, which kind of moves beyond the point. The point that I'd like to ask you about or that I'd like you to make, because you do say since God is just, God is right, then justice doesn't move towards right, it is right. When we, when we come from a, from a God perspective. Now go back to where we began. Justice is equity, or everyone being treated equal, because ontologically we are all the same before God. But it occurs to me that if you, you know, if you study the Bible, you're going to find in Scripture God doesn't deal with everybody the same always. Sometimes some things seem fair, some things seem unfair to us. You know, I, I think of the, you know, the psalmist who says, hey, God, here I am. I'm trying to live for you, and I'm trying to do right, and I got all these problems. And here's an old boy over here, and he, uh, you know, he's unrighteous. He don't care about you, and, man, he's prospering. All his goats are having plenty of goats, and his fields are full, and his, you know, are, are producing, his vats are full, whatever. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, oftentimes the psalmist would cry out to God, this is fair. And I guess my question would be, when we think about the justice of God, is fairness really, can, can, we, can we even talk about it in those terms? Well, just think about Habakkuk. That was his, that was his cry. You know, he said, how long, O Lord, shall the wicked prosper? And God said, I'm going to show you something in your day that you can't even imagine. You know, so what we perceive as unfairness may not have been judged equitably in our timing, but it will be in God's. So although we may see it as unfair in the moment, God will deal with that in a just way because he is just. Absolutely. But when you try to press that reality into the criminal justice system, I don't see that it works because... You know, we say, okay, well, that's unfair. You take Couch and you take this, you know, this other kid. You know, if you compare those two together, we would look at that and say it's unfair. But the way criminal justice, if you, if you take them individually, I'm not sure that you're able to say what is or isn't fair. And if, if then the thing you, you go to and you say, okay, well, well God's going God's to gonna take care of it sooner or later. I mean, one of the things that the prophets, you know, said, I was just reading this in Deuteronomy, you know, today is one of the problems is, is there's, or, or maybe this was Isaiah 59, there's injustice in the land. There's, you know, there's no justice. And this violates the person of God. God's going to take care of it. But from a human standpoint or perspective, are, are we able to take care of it? Do we have to leave it in the hands of God, I guess? Well, when we see the disparity between, you know, the Ethan couches and the other young guy that was sent to prison for 20 years, 
is the judge in a position to tell people who see that as unfair that I will show you something in your day that you'll marvel at? You know, of course not. Yeah. So I think that from a human perspective, in terms of trying to maintain the equity of justice based on the inherent rightness of justice, we have to deal with one another first and foremost as equals. And whatever fairness looks like at that point will look radically different than it does right now because that is not the perspective with which we deal with people. We don't deal with people as if we are equal. So I'm still struggling with this issue of fairness. Are we even able ever to say what is or isn't fair? And so maybe we ought to work towards. And again, what, what we're trying to deal with here is as a child of God, how do we how should we think about the criminal justice system? How do we look at the criminal justice system? How should we speak to and, you know, in the community for the criminal justice system if fairness is almost impossible for us to determine? I'm thinking, and I, and I know I'm trying to come back to what you just said. Instead of talking about what is or isn't fair, we should talk about what is or isn't equitable. Was this person treated the same way as this other individual by the law regardless of how much money they had or what kind of lawyer they had or that type of thing would, would that be the issue of justice we need to come to yeah i think so and you know you raised the question you know if the christian lives in a world that increasingly undermines any specific belief about god all the other, then what do we do and i think to become number one aware that we have by and large bought into a narrative that is unchristian. And if we switch back to a Christian narrative and a Christian understanding of justice, then we're in a very powerful position in this country still today. And I think this recent example with the Supreme Court handing over abortion laws back to the states, who do we attribute that to? Who has labored for that? for the last 50 years, Christians. Sure. You know, and, and I think that is a, a distinct example of how Christians are still today in a position to create a realm of justice for a group of people who did not have a voice, an equitable voice, for the last 45 or 50 years. The unborn were not considered to be equal. persons. Certainly didn't have an equitable voice to cry out in terms of an unfairness that was uh, levied against them. And so I think that's an example of Christians when they cling tenaciously to, you know, an idea of the justice of God. So, really, the last sentence in this particular chapter really, I think, summarizes all of this and maybe brings us to the place where we need to be, which is. You're right. There is no standard or ground outside of God himself that arbitrates for us how we should treat one another as human beings created in his image and likeness. Or, in other words, as an individual, as a believer, I have to go back to God to understand issues of justice, fairness, whatever, because if I can't see you or see 
an individual who comes before the bar of justice as equal to me ontologically in being because we're created in the image of God. We are unique creatures in God's image. If that is not where we start, then there will be no justice. There will be no fairness. Because there is no equity. All our attempts to create equity will be, at the very best, arbitrary, you know, unless that equity is grounded in our very being because we are created in the image and likeness of God. Jason, thank you for, for bringing us to that place. I think that is a powerful statement or understanding and really helps us, I think, to, to come to the place where we view justice in a way that they can help us make a difference. All right, thank you all for joining us for this reflection on justice. Next week, we'll look at a reflection on the law. We pray God's blessings upon you, and take care until next time. Hopefully this has been encouraging, while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt With Fetters, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt With Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.